Hello, my name is William Beard. I'm a professor of film studies at the University of Alberta and author of the book, The Artist as Monster, the Cinema of David Cronenberg. The Fly is, uh, by a long ways, Cronenberg's biggest hit. Uh, it's probably safe to say that more people have seen this Cronenberg film than any other Cronenberg film. I'm going to be commenting on aspects of individual scenes, but I would also like to talk about how this film fits into the overall uh, career of, of David Cronenberg, particularly his horror films, you might say, from uh, Shivers in 1977 to Existence in 1999. After that, he started making films which are much harder to describe as horror films. Cronenberg returns obsessively to a number of themes in his work, and particularly in these horror films. And The Fly has its own distinct place, repeating and modifying many of the uh, elements that are present in other earlier Cronenberg films, uh, and also containing aspects which are unique. Cronenberg, of course, is usually credited with inventing uh, the subgenre of body horror, in which the threat, the monster in the horror movie, it is not some exterior monster, but is something directly connected with the body. So that in Shivers, people have uh, sex-crazed parasites living in their abdomens. In Rabid, uh, there's a uh, vampirish uh, kind of woman uh, who infects people with, with rabies and causes them to uh, jump on other, attack other people and spread this as a, uh, as a disease. In The Brood, we have a doctor, a psychologist, who encourages his patients to manifest their inner anger as bodily manifestations, bodily uh, somatic like symptoms. I have a fiame of my very own. You know what that is? It's not the dilettante's plastic kitchen model. It's one of those uh, uh, real restaurant espresso. In The Fly, there's a clear uh, representation also of monstrosity, monstrosity in the body of the central character, played by Jeff Goldblum. He, his body begins to uh, transform itself in the most horrible and monstrous way in, until, in the end, he's really no longer himself even. So in that respect, uh, The Fly is, is a kind of uh, a number one example of Cronenberg's body horror. In Cronenberg's earlier films, uh, the, the monstrosity, the horror, is brought about by scientific activity on the part of, in, you could always just call them mad scientists. Uh, that's the case in Shivers. Uh, in Rabid, the, the scientist isn't so mad, but the effect is the same. Uh, the brood and scanners also. Um, in The Fly, the horror is, originates with the central character himself. This is something that had been present in Cronenberg's film since Videodrome, his kind of really, uh, really very important transitional film for, for Cronenberg, in which these scientific uh, 
experiments, which have terrible results, are initiated by the central character himself. That's clearly the case in The Fly. Uh, the Fly is unique in Cronenberg's work in that it contains not only this kind of skeletal scenario of a scientific experiment that turns out really badly, but also in offering uh, much more fully developed and three-dimensional characters than is often the case in Cronenberg films. Uh, and the pairing of Jeff Goldblum and, and Gina Davis, who incidentally were a, a pair at the time, were a couple at the time, uh, is has been described by everybody as a romance, a love story. And that is unique in Cronenberg. You've already seen them. I'll stop for a moment here or deviate for a moment here to talk about the space in which Seth Brundle lives. It's a big, open, industrial type of, of uh, set, an old warehouse uh, room which has all, no partitions at all and is, is uh, simply a space where his uh, scientific activity goes on and also his living activity. There's a kitchen, a, a bed. And there's this piano uh, where he can riffle off uh, love is a many splendored thing and, and also then these very menacing kind of self-consciously uh, sarcastic or, or ironic, uh, very dramatic chords that in the end, of course, are not going to be so ironic. They're going to be more straightforward. Okay, here we have uh, the telepods. And the telepods, again, are remarkable in a number of ways, just from a design standpoint. Uh, first of all, they are almost military in their um, massiveness, in their coloration, in their uh, metallic, uh, you know, uh, formation. They are not very refined-looking objects in the sense that they have carry always this heavy, heavy, heavy quality. And this, as I said, a kind of overtone of a military or uh, some kind of forceful uh, presence there. Okay. They are ovoid, they're egg-shaped, um, and they are uh, also places where things are born, things come out of. So they're almost like, you know, womb uh, organizations in some way. That scene with the sheer stalking is the arrival of sex in this movie in a way that is, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful shot and it's beautiful. I mean, Gina Davis is beautiful. The uh, stalking has a very uh, suggestive quality to it. And it's the beginning of the arrival of sexuality into this sphere of scientific experimentation, a thing that is going to transform that experiment entirely. As we will discover, these teleportation machines, the teleportation process is able to uh, very uh, easily transform, transport objects, uh, non-organic objects. But the limitation is that when living beings or organic material is teleported from one pod to another, bad things happen, as we'll see very graphically in a little while.
Just getting back to this idea of a birth process, these are eggs. The eggs produce, in the end, something. The something that the eggs produce will ultimately turn out to be a monster. But there is a kind of parental aspect to this where the eggs, in this case, belong to the father, Seth Brundle, and the insemination belongs to the woman who is, uh, you know, the person who adds a sexual element to the whole process and allows it to be, uh, to, to be used for, for, for uh, oh. transporting bodies. And that's an interesting and rather characteristic gender confusion uh, that happens in, in Cronenberg films sometimes. It's also the case, of course, that Ronnie is the professional here. I mean, she's a, she's a reporter, she has a job, she, uh, you know, she's interviewing people, she is sort of controlling narratives in certain ways, whereas Seth is this stay-at-home guy uh, who, as he says himself, uh, doesn't get out much, um, and who is very internalized, very alone, and what the, the movie is showing, amongst other things, is, of course, the piercing of that veil of aloneness or that, that carapace of aloneness so that Seth becomes part of a, a couple with Ronnie. That process, on the one hand, allows the invention to succeed and, on the other hand, is the source of the destructive outcomes that take place later and we'll see that as as the film uh moves along how could you do this alone he is this bachelor type who i mean and there's jokes near the beginning about how uh you know he's got an espresso machine he's got a piano he's uh and he is looks like a nerd and he is a nerd in this respect. Uh, Ronnie at one point says, I bet you got a really neat jukebox in here too, an indication of the way that she has taken him at first sight as somebody who is a nerd and a social, uh, you know, socially crippled in some ways. You haven't told them? When I'm ready. What engages her, of course, is this fantastic process of teleportation through space. Teleportation through space, a project which Seth um, has initiated because he himself, as we've seen in the car ride a little bit earlier, he himself gets nauseous, is uh, made sick by, by motion. Uh, and that itself is, is also kind of metaphoric. Uh, he's, when he's standing still and when he's, so to speak, by himself, things are okay. But when, when he starts moving, uh, that the body inserts itself in ways that are unwelcome to him. He starts to get sick. So his idea is teleportation, not simply to, I mean, as if we have fantastic... Uh, effect if teleportation uh, became a widespread phenomenon. But the thing that has inspired him in the first place is this wish to avoid the bodily symptom of car sickness or, you know, movement, movement sickness. And therefore, there's another connection, so to speak, to the body there uh, between Seth and his project. You notice, just, just as we're passing here, the, the offices of Particle Magazine, uh, you know, run by, by Stathis Borens here, um, f- 
Ronnie's former boyfriend and somebody who's still hung up on her, actually. But the office itself is very different from Seth's uh, environment. It is glass and and, uh, concrete and steel and and fancy leather furniture and, uh, you know, potted plants and and so on, which is just just normal, absolutely ordinary uh, type of office environment. But we are perhaps made aware of the fact of how different how different Seth's space is compared to that space. I'm going to go back for a moment to talk about the development of the Cronenberg hero. The Cronenberg hero, the person who is supposed to carry the plot forward, is supposed, is supposed to solve the problems that are brought up by, the, by, by these catastrophes that are created by mad scientists or... Uh, people behaving like that or, or in effect uh, being that, uh, who apply radical scientific methods to try and transform life in a way that is supposedly going to be uh, helpful, but in fact ends up being disastrous. Excellent. Let's see what the people at Omni think about it. The earlier, you know, in, in, in Shivers, in Rabid, in The Brood, you have these very pallid, very weak male characters who are supposed to be controlling the narrative, but they really don't. They're defeated and frustrated all the time. I'm just going to take time out here to talk about this idea of cheeseburger as being uh, Brundle's, you know, sort of uh, seductive uh, tool in some ways, or celebratory tool in some ways. And it's, it is a very, uh, it's symptomatic of Brundle's tastes in food, in, in uh, other forms of uh, pleasure, which are, I mean, he has low taste in food, right? He, he wants to eat a, eat a hamburger, and they go to this place, this restaurant, which is all orange and yellow and, and again, completely different. It is, uh, it's crass in a certain way. And it, it sits strangely next to Seth's refinement and intellectuality and, of course, Ronnie's good taste. She says it couldn't be worse than this. It's an indication of Seth's lack of social sophistication. And he takes the position of another one of these Cronenberg's central characters who is recessive, who is internal, who who is in a position not to dominate the narrative, uh, although he is the central character along with with, uh, Ronnie. His transformation is from an internalized, introspective, intellectual person into somebody who is the opposite of all of those things. I mean, he starts out, on one level, he starts out as a person and ends up as a fly monster. On another level, he starts out as a a social introvert, a loner, uh, somebody who is, uh, you know, as Cronenberg himself has pointed out, a virgin. Till to somebody that you're going to see later in the film as somebody who has gone completely off the deep end of self-indulgence, of letting go, a concept that we'll talk about later on when we get there. The idea that you have to, you have to, Cronenberg, you know, an idea that you have to keep, keep control of yourself because if you don't, your appetites are just going to drag you down. Eight 
here's Ronnie's apartment, which again is completely different from Seth's. It has this kind of 18th century, you know, Jane Austen equality almost, a very uh, gentle, uh, tasteful uh, environment with um, friendly and warm uh, overtones. You know, these pinks and, and, and pale blues and fuchsia colors and so on are very restful. And the textures of her, uh, her main sitting room are, are the same kind of way with these wooden uh, pillars and uh, this, this uh, warm leather furniture, soft leather furniture, with one striking and remarkable uh, exception, one, one, one thing that doesn't belong in this environment, which at the same time is very telling. And it's that red thing that just went past uh, there. We didn't get a good look at it. You will later. It's in itself a kind of monstrous, there it is on the right side of the screen, this twisted, uh, very organic looking twisted uh, red uh, strands in uh, a, which strike a very different note from, from, for example, that pillar in the, in the middle ground there or the other parts of the set and indicate the presence of sexuality the presence of a dangerous kind of sexuality in Ronnie's environment. It's, and it's characteristic, Here's her, she has a red uh, notebook and a red uh, folio. And there's an, it's an indication of the way that environment, again, and, and decor and costumes and, and color usage are reflective. Cronenberg is very, very good at using setting and costume design to reflect and to comment on things that are going on uh, in the film without ever anybody ever talking about what they're actually doing. But that, that, is that a planter? What, I'm not sure exactly what that thing is, but it's very striking and very strange and powerful in a way that doesn't fit uh, with everything else in this environment, which again is very mild and tasteful and, and uh, controlled. And that, that thing is not controlled. Okay, so here we are back in the lab, and we note, I mean, this movie's made in 1986, and the changes, uh, the, the advances in computer technology and computer design since then are massive and overwhelming. It, for most contemporary viewers under, this circ under these circumstances, the great danger is that this stuff just looks too simple. It looks too uh, primitive as, uh, you know, computer technology to to uh, elicit anything other than a kind of uh, con contempt. I'll get back to that in a minute because we're going to have a spectacular example of body horror uh, coming up in just a second. Uh, these pods with these flashes of electric light, uh, these extremely strong uh, light. Uh, this is famous as well. It, that's a that's a moment for you. Uh, there's th these clouds of white steam that come out of the pods when they're opened. And then there's this first moment in the film of the truly uh, extraordinary level of bodily horror that Cronenberg is prepared to deploy in this film. I mean, look at this. The thing has been turned inside out. It's the, the worst thing is it's still alive, you know? It's really horrible. It doesn't last for very long, but it's really horrible. Seeing Seth posed in this way with his gray uh, sport coat, his, his burgundy tie, uh, 
this kind of formal position with his elbow on the telepod um, is a kind of, again, a kind of a design statement of this, um, what, the grayness, the non-organicness of the stage, the stage of the project. What's going to happen is that, first of all, we are, they start a sexual relationship pretty quickly here. As they start a sexual relationship, Seth begins this long process of transformation from the guy that you see right here until, of course, the horrific monster uh, that you find at the end of the film. Ronnie, who started out thinking of Seth as, I don't know, first of all, you know, a nerd, uh, kind of embarrassing even, then as a scientific project, as scientific, a journalistic project, a kind of great career opportunity for her is now beginning to fall and to, to be really attracted to Seth and to get to know him better. Okay, here we are. This couch now introduces these warm colors into this gray environment. The couch with its stripes in brown and olive green, uh, this, this quilt, which is dried blood color, and we start to move from the gray and blue aspect uh, spectrum into the, the brown and red uh, spectrum as we go along. This closet full of, of jackets that are exactly the same show exactly how little Brundle is paying attention to or involved in the social world. He has, uh, apparently Einstein also used to uh, wear you know, have a closet full of the same costume so he didn't have to think about uh, what he was going to put on uh, in the day. But it's also another uh, visual representation of an emotional state, of a psychological state uh, on the part of Seth Brundle, introvert uh, and social maladept. Now, Ronnie starts to be really attracted to this strange person. And Gina Davis is wonderful. Uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum is wonderful. Great performances here. Probably the best, the best thing either one of them has done in very uh, strong and productive careers. But we now go into the world of sexuality. Uh, here they are naked. And Seth is behind her. This is something I don't want to go into, but it does echo... Uh, the sexual positioning of the man behind the woman, uh, a, a trope that shows up in an awful lot of Cronenberg films. Well, uh, they turn around, uh, and the first thing that happens is Seth getting this computer chip embedded in his back, and when it's taken out, um, well, I'll come back to that, it leaves these three lines as a, as a scar. And of course, what this represents is the marriage or the hmm, interaction of technology and sexuality, of the mind and the body. And this mind-body split has been an obsessive uh, subject of interest to Cronenberg uh, right from, from his, his first films. Nothing has happened yet, you know. Uh, the, the, the computer has not yet learned how to 
transport living things. Uh, there has been no uh, real advance in the scientific project at this point, but that computer chip uh, has is already angry in a certain kind of way, and there's there's a kind of um, there's a symptom of the way in which this is not going to work. Uh, there's something unnatural about this; it's not going to work. It's a small symptom, but it's it's telling. Okay, here we have raw meat and its transformation. C getting back to the computer, it is clunky also. It has this heavy metallic quality too. The surfaces are gray. Uh, it, it looks like a tank, you know, again, it has this kind of military uh, quality to it. And this, as a way of representing technology is kind of counterintuitive. You would think that technology would be more glass and, and metal and, and uh, things of this kind, as opposed to these blank, heavy, metallic uh, objects, which, again, signify a certain kind of brute power that's present in the scientific environment, in the trans transformative environment that, that the computer is, is running uh, in this project. Are you serious? A monkey just so Brundle is beginning to experiment and to try and work his way out of the problem of the device that does not transport organic material. While at the same time, the relationship is building here. They're chiming each other. The dialogue is, is, is very nice in a lot of ways. This language, the scientific language here is, is very interesting because scientists don't talk like this and this project would not be described in this way. Uh, the computer is interpreting something in a certain way, which gives a um, character to the, to the computer. He himself says the computers are dumb, they only know what you tell them, but at the same time he's constantly uh, using psychological terms to talk about this uh, computational project. And what the computer knows and doesn't know is, in this case, he has his, this is his conceptual breakthrough. The computer doesn't know about the flesh. The flesh is, of course, the sex and the body. And what Seth Brendel has become as a result of this sexual relationship that he has begun. The idea that you could sit down in front of your computer, press a few keys, and, and uh, get your computer to understand the flesh is ridiculous. But it's necessary for the film for, for it to be done in that fashion, because otherwise there's no movie. The, the project cannot be described or, or talked about unless it is in these terms of the flesh being inserted into the world of technology, the flesh being inserted into the cerebral field. Again, this meeting place of the mind and the body, computer programming and the flesh, is characteristic for the whole film, and indeed of Cronenberg's thematic concerns throughout so many films. What are you doing here? I followed you. Psychology today, my ass. You stayed with Brundle all night. Now, for some reason, um, Stathis is actually wearing... Uh, Brundle's clothing here, a, a uh, gray tweed jacket. 
But Ronnie is shopping for a leather jacket, and this is the beginning again of another aspect of the outward transformation of Brendel from the world, this kind of sterile, uh, clean world of uh, his, uh, where he is at the beginning, sterile and clean. Uh, and sterile in a, in, a, in a double sense also because it's not productive. It's not being productive. It's clean, but it's not being productive. You, you creep. Ronnie, you've got to talk to me. I don't have to do anything. This leather jacket we will see as part of a regime that is going to continue throughout the film and, be, and again is representative of the transformation in Brundle's nature. Okay, now this baboon who you can... <laughs> It, there's a Cronenberg commentary track also with this issue, and you could go over there to find Cronenberg's uh, um, comment, comments on the baboon and people's relationships with the baboon and so on. This is a, very theatrical, right? The, the door opens this uh, torrent of white, white uh, steam comes out, and then the result appears. A moment ago, you saw him, Seth, that is, chewing his nails. It's really and this is a habit that you'll see repeated. And it's symptomatic, too, and I'll talk about it later on. Look at the environment now. This shirt that he's wearing is entirely sort of fleshly in color, right? It's, always, again, this, this dull red uh, that, that's so, uh, so different from his... his uh, regular costume that we've seen before, and this red chair that has uh, an even more powerful uh, presence in uh, the environment here than that red twisted thing that's in Ronnie's apartment. It is a place from this chair seems to be like the only piece of furniture almost in the entire place, and it is its redness is blood red, significantly related to the body as this shirt is also. So we're having now fertility, the body's associated with fertility and blood also. And this arrival has allowed the machine to successfully uh, trans transport uh, living flesh. Yes. We're gonna have a very romantic dinner right here. So Chinese, <laughs> Chinese takeaway. Uh, it goes with cheeseburger um, hey, as an example of Seth's, how should we say, kind of demotic uh, tastes in, in food. He's not interested in, you know, filet mignon or uh, more uh, sophisticated kinds of food. So this intervention of Stathis into the plot, uh, jumping the gun, on uh, Ronnie's story, on the basis of jealousy, on the basis of sexual jealousy, a theme that is going to return almost immediately in this film. And this sets off. I mean, it has it has consequences. She's she's going to make a visit to Stathis and call him on this and make sure that their relationship is absolutely over. But Seth who is a newcomer to the world of sexual relationships, who is a newcomer to love relationships of this kind, is 
not very sophisticated again. He's not very well versed in how to handle his own emotions, which start getting out of control here. And his own emotions are now related again to the project of teleportation and the body. He's not used to being upset in this way. And, and it's a symptom also of the arrival of sexuality in the body into his personality, which before was encased, enclosed in this um, quiet, clean, gray, internalized uh, personality where, you know, he might have problems and wishes and desires, but they were not any kind of threat to his balance, his emotional balance. Whereas now, he almost immediately uh, makes a big, big mistake by giving way to jealousy. I'm just going to uh, wait until that, uh, that moment shows up in a minute. Keep me informed, all right? As a friend, as a professional confidant. That's all? I don't want you to disappear from my life. Stath is a romantic figure at this point, and that romantic figure, he, he makes a transformation too in this film from a jerk to the person who saves... Yeah, I'm not uh, saying love or affection. R just Ronnie's life at the stress. end. We're leaving sex. You and me. You're disgusting. As always. Didn't want to disappoint you. Okay, here we are, and the first thing you see is this big red chair out of focus in the front of the shot. He's walking around, he's drinking, so as well as having his bodily... Uh, instincts awakened and educated, uh, he's, he's also started to drink and he started to, started this process of, I don't know what to, what to call it, indulgence in a certain kind of way or giving, giving way, you know, uh, allowing yourself to do things that you didn't allow yourself to do before. So this monologue that he delivers, which is nicely covered by the fact that he's talking to a baboon that is sitting right in front of him, is indicative of his internal situation, indicative of his jealousy already of, of, of Ronnie. Uh, the jealousy which is really not um, justified in any way, even for... Uh, even for Seth, it's a big leap for him to suddenly think, well, she's gone back to her old boyfriend, they're having sex, uh, and everything that I believed in. Well, look at, the, look at what the uh, baboon is doing to this chair now. There's the fly. The, the, uh, the baboon sees it, but Seth doesn't. And, of course, this is the fatal conjunction about to take place. Just get a glimpse there of Seth naked inside this telepod. And that's going to be uh, uh, bring up another question, which is Seth's actual physical body, which we'll uh, be talking about quite a bit as the film goes on. There, th that's a, that's the image, which which is like a sculptural pose, in which he looks like somebody that doesn't dress in gray jackets. He looks like I don't know what a Greek god or something like that in this. Uh, in this pose and in, in, with this lighting and with this lack of clothing. 
So already he's pre-shadowing aspects of himself that are going to become uh, clear uh, in uh, very shortly. Aspects of augmented masculinity. Of course, Seth always looked like this if he'd taken his clothes off, but we don't we don't register his body as being so heroic before these scenes and subsequent ones. How are you doing? I mean, look at this. He's covered in sweat. He looks, you know, he, he's, uh, he's a hunk. And uh, he hero- has a heroic, heroic masculinity now, uh, something that he'd never had before. Instead, he was this introverted antibody person, person who didn't want anything to do with the body and wanted even to get away with symptoms of bodily discomfort like motion sickness. Look at these sliding doors. I mean, again, this kind of really, um, and, and again, almost a prison-like effect you might get with some of these, some of these uh, shots. She comes home and she finds Seth asleep. The light that's coming down on him is blue light, uh, which we also saw in the little corridor scene a, a moment ago, um, a much more de-organicized color. So he goes through by himself. What had what would have happened? You know, here's a thought experiment. What would have happened if he if Ronnie had not decided to go and visit Stathens? And therefore that Seth had not gotten so uh unreasonably jealous while while she was gone. And we're led to expect that because of this that the, that the presence of the fly in the teleportation chain, chamber is directly related to the fact that Ronnie's not there and that Jeff is, uh, Jeff is suffering from, from uh, sorry, Seth is suffering from uh, jealousy. That's why you were upset? But, of course, the fly has to be in the teleportation chamber or there's no movie. Seth. Uh, what goes on just... Uh, parenthetically, and again, Cronenberg talks about this more in his own uh, commentary, uh, is the distance between this and the first version of The Fly in the 1950s, uh, which has a completely different profile and experience. Hey, what about our deal? You went through and I wasn't there. Yeah, she's she's just so charming at moments like this. and so easily charming too. These little, these little smiles that she gives. These little, you know, she the way she flicks her eyes around and and uh, just wonderful uh, from 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 Gina Davis. Okay, sex again, more sex. And one of the things, of course, that's going to happen with fly transformation. Whoops, wait for a moment. Here we have these the scar, which is three these three lines. Slash, 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 which is an actual uh, trope in, in Cronenberg's films. You have uh, three lines, three cuts on the neck of uh, the uh, Nikki uh, brand in Videodrome as an indication of some kind of, I don't know what, connection between sex and violence, sex and, and uh, 
punishing, and it shows up again in existence later on. So the process of masculinization, which we see, which we saw in the change of costume, which we saw in Seth's body being revealed in this fashion, is now going to become augmented. The, 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 a symptom is he's able to catch that fly in his hand. His, his um, reflexes are so much sharper and better. And he starts to take on these fly characteristics which at first don't look like fly characteristics, but look like augmentations of human characteristics. He's now just able to do things that he wasn't before. And we see this in the, the scene uh, that's coming up here where he is in the next uh, part of the, the adjoining part of the, the, uh, the loft and starting to do these fantastic physical I don't know, exercises. It's a performance of, of strength that is, again, there's that red chair in a crucial spot. He's starting to feel stronger. He's be, he carries himself differently. He can do fantastic things now. He's beginning to figure out. Now, the fact that Seth, that uh, Jeff Goldblum is, uh, uh, you know, a body bit of a bodybuilder himself um, allows a smooth trans, tra, a, a smooth uh, transference between uh, shots with, where it's clearly uh, Jeff Goldblum and, and shots where the double is actually doing these advanced gymnastic exercises. So these are a representation of, again, a representation of physical mastery. It's not just that he has become physically less. Um, introverted and and more expressive of uh, uh, you know bodily bodily activities, but that he now has become super strong, and his masculinity is not just a regular power masculinity. And you see again this glistening sweat and so on. These this kind of pinup quality of of. Uh, Jeff Goldblum in these scenes, uh, that, that he can do things that are more than what ordinary people are able to do. The first manifestations, uh, here he is walking on the ceiling, a thing that a fly does. Uh, we'll see more of that later. His masculinity has become super masculine and his... It's a symptom of his flyness that he has a, gr a great, you know, strength to body mass. Look at that little pose there. Really sculptural strength to body mass ratio. R Ronnie looks at all this and she's turned on by this spectacle. Why not? Red chair right there. Covered with sweat. Very bodily. Also very sexual at this point. So we can almost say if we have a sense that this, that this is part of uh, Seth's transformation, and in fact, even if you're seeing the movie for the first time, you know what's going to happen or something like what's going to happen, that this masculinity that he has achieved is a form of flyness, you know? Here he is in his leather jacket, his red shirt, And a romantic moment where uh, 
there's a locket uh, that he buys for Ronnie. And it's, it's a reminder of the way that this, or it's, you know, just an emphasis of the ro truly romantic nature of this relationship and of this movie. Nothing like it in any other Cronenberg film, really, nothing like it. Uh, there are there are relationships and so on, and they're not always uh, you know destructive or anything. But this actual romantic relationship is unique. So now the next symptom that turns up is sugar in the, in the cappuccino. So much sweetness, so many calories. The dialogue here, the monologue, Seth's monologue is just racing along. Again, terrific performance by by uh, Jeff Goldblum. This notion that the this racing of ideas, this racing of of of, of thoughts and expression that um, are coming out of Seth now, or again, symptoms of his transformation into a different kind of a person. And so instead of being an introvert, he's now an extrovert, and he's now an extrovert of kind of exaggerated uh, qualities. Molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out... It's inherently purging, and this felt like a million bucks. Now I'm going to have a cannoli after all. So he's simultaneously feeling great, feeling powerful, feeling happy, uh, feeling as if he's finally become a success, feeling as though he has uh, emerged from his, his, uh, his cocoon, so to speak, but he's become somebody who's now too extroverted and too eager to um, indulge his bodily appetites. In this case, uh, you know, heavily sugared coffee and, uh, you know, uh, high-calorie pasta. So he's, he's gone... He's already at, this, at the point of going over. And now this next scene is just... Well, it's their lovemaking, but you almost want to call it a fucking session because it's just sex, sex, sex. And already Seth is beginning a physical transformation. We have these hairs that are cut, that are sprouting from the place where the uh, computer chip got embedded in his back. He, his face is now more modeled already, and this is, again, is the process that's going to continue uh, on and on throughout the whole rest of the movie until he becomes unrecognizable. But this, now, this influence on, or sorry, this um, appetite for sexuality, for sex, appetite for sex, has gone over the top already, too. He wants to just have sex and have sex and have sex and have sex and have sex and, have sex and never stop almost and again this is a kind of caricature of power masculinity now he's starting to eat oreo ice cream out of the bucket and these of course are indications of the flies appetite for sweets a thing that you keep seeing all the way through the film but also of human self-indulgence to just be eating sweets to eat ice cream uh, to, you know, to eat sweet, milky coffee. So they're self-indulgences. They are, they are like a drug. 
they are like a drug, and we now get drug metaphors and drug behavior uh, going on. Don't give me that born again teleportation rap. I told you I'm scared to do it. Don't give me that born again teleportation uh, story. That the drag, you know that? Yeah. Okay. You're a fucking drag. What is this? This is drug user talk. Drug user wants his girlfriend to take some more heroin or whatever, and she says no, and he says you're a fucking drag. That this is so far out of character of the uh, romantic set that we've seen just a couple of scenes ago that it's very clear that uh, something serious has happened. And what has happened is to drive him not only more like a fly, but drive him further down into uh, self-indulgence, into bodily appetite. And at the same time, he's talking about the plasma pool and the the grave fear, society's grave fear of the slack. I mean, he's, he, he's become a, a zealot as well. Okay, he puts on his jacket over his bare chest, I believe. Performs a tiny athletic feat here. And now we see him outside. There's not that many outside scenes in the whole film. But look at this. The music has now really ramped up uh, the intensity. And he is striding down, I don't know what looks like, uh, Young Street. And into this, he's chewing on a candy bar, and he walks into this uh, biker's bar, you know, this kind of caricature of low life. Um, and he's sunk all the way down uh, from somebody who is not even at ease in the, the scientific uh, convention that's going on at the very beginning of the film, but he's quite prepared to just dive right in to the lower end of social class. All of these new behaviors, well, particularly junk food eating, hanging out, uh, at bars, using sex in a completely physical, uh, non-emotional uh, way are symptoms of what happens in the Cronenberg world when you let go, when the the inhibitions which had been govern you, governing you and also limiting you and isolating you uh, at the beginning are uh, have, have, have turned into their opposite and now you're not inhibited anymore in the least. Uh, but at the same time, there are these other things that are going along with it, which are um, very tacky aspects. Now, the person he's arm wrestling here is George Chivalo, who was a heavyweight boxing champion of Canada and was actually internationally ranked uh, heavyweight boxer uh, for a while. That's a Canadian inside joke. Well, everybody knows what's going to happen in the scene. Just note that Seth's face is even more a little bit mottled here and a little darker. And now it looks like fly juice coming out. I don't know. And now we have another one of these bodily moments, these bodily horror moments coming up uh, with a um, horrible intrusion of bodily violence into the world. And Cronenberg gives us a whole extra shot of that. It's not as though he stays away from any of this stuff in the least. He emphasizes how awful, how, how disgusting, how horrifying these uh, bodily events are. Yeah, well, okay. 
I live with my mother and... So they're going to go back to his place and have sex. Tawny, uh, I, I love Tawny. She's a perfect, again, uh, caricature of, uh, you know, trailer trash, uh, bar pickup, even though, <laughs> as she says uh, at one point, she, li she lives with her mother. Uh, just a remark about this location. It is so dirty. He says earlier it's cleaner inside. It's so industrial. It's so messy uh, that it itself is, that's a kind of a danger uh, sig signal in, uh, in Cronenberg's work. So now we have another physical um, demonstration of strength. Um, I'll just carry you upstairs. And uh, Jeff Goldblum actually does this. So, you know, it's another advantage of having a strong <laughs> bodybuilder or quasi-bodybuilder uh, male actor that you can, you don't need a double for scenes like this. Okay, here she is, nothing on but, but panties and this jacket, and she's sitting in that red chair. Again. And this, you know, these these flashes and these lightning and kind of thunder and lightning things are reminiscent of scenes from horror movies in the 1930s, you know, uh, a, a quasi-magical events, very theatrical again. So again, here he is believing that he has been augmented by teleportation. I am a sort of magician. So again, the, the debasement of the romantic sexuality which sent him through onto this side uh, is very clear here. And what is, you know, he starts to look mad. She's scratching his back and the, 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 the scratching is right parallel to this um, so, are we going to deformation that's beginning to happen on his... His his back. Okay, again, this another is a sculptural sculptural pose. No, I don't want to try that. Why not? It'll make you feel sexy. But I already feel sexy. How about? And he's got his hand to his side, uh, and this is something that's going to continue. Okay, front flies don't like alcohol. I didn't know you had the skin of a princess. Sensitive, huh? Okay, okay, that's it. You're going to like it. I don't want to. I'm afraid. So he's going to drag her through teleportation. Be afraid. Be very don't be afraid. afraid. Be afraid. Be very afraid. This line has entered the language oh, now, uh, originating in this Mommy, scene in the film. I gotta go. So that's the end of that, and we get another confrontation of. Uh, Seth and and um, Ronnie, she and these cool. Well, okay, so this cool blue uh, combined with this kind of red scarf. Hard to scare her off. Jealous. Jealous. That's changing, Seth. ironic, of course. About you is changing. So now she begins to give him the message that she that. sees there's something wrong with him, even though he doesn't see it himself. There's something wrong, something happened during the teleportation process. 
uh, these hairs that have come through are turn out to be insectoid hairs. And one can just remark at this point that insects are, are a peculiar horror uh, in, uh, in this film and in Cronenberg's world and in the, the human world. Uh, and in particular, they are also um, strongly um, exploited as horror aspects in the work of William Burroughs, uh, author of Naked Lunch and, and other books, who was one of Cronenberg's principal uh, artistic influences. And in fact, very soon after this film, a couple of films, he makes a, a version of Burroughs' Naked Lunch. So to be an insect is, you could, I mean, if you turned into something else, like an armadillo, I have no idea. <clears throat> That's one thing. To turn into a fly is something else. So now this, bring me down. You're going to bring me down. Does this look like a sick man to you? That's good. I like it. Sick men who can do that? Come here. He's, uh, but this, you're trying to bring me down is exactly drug user language. And the idea that, that teleport, he's using teleportation as a drug, uh, even though re repeated teleportation isn't doing anything to him that we can see. But this drug usage is, uh, again, another aspect of what happens when you let go. You find yourself in thrall to these bodily appetites that had hitherto been repressed. So you're, there's no sweet spot in this movie. Well, there is. It's about five minutes long where he has managed to come out of his introverted stage, manages to have a real uh, loving relationship with a woman and has his, uh, his life's work scientifically um, formed and successful. It lasts about five minutes and immediately it starts to go bad. So now he starts to examine himself in the mirror and he's seeing these things that are... Uh, he's beginning to see aspects, getting corroborative evidence, which at first he is resisting. Now here he is biting his nails again, which of, of course in the first place was a kind of unrefined habit. And this time, of course, he pulls his entire nail off and that this is a moment of... Horror. This is the moment also when he first understands that his body is being transformed in a bad way. Now he's holding his his finger here. That finger is a little penis, right? It just squirted some semen all over the the uh, the mirror. Or th th one one scholar uh, talks about Seth's process of transformation here. He is like a teenager at this point. He's unsh. He he has doubts about his body, he is self-conscious, he is <laughs> squeezing pimples in front of the mirror also. So there's that kind of uh, insecurity. Here we, now he is gone over into a completely other, other sphere. And his own body starts to horrify him. Where before he had learned to embrace his own body, so to speak, to embrace his, his strength, his masculinity. Now he begins to see that the transformation doesn't stop at the right point. It kept on going and going and going, and it's a, a death sentence in the end. Cronenberg says that this movie is about mortality. When it came out, people made the remark that it's about 
It was about AIDS, in which in 1986 was certainly a very big topic. And Cronenberg has said, well, no, I never thought of it that way. And, and the more Cronenbergian uh, disease would be cancer, which has always had a, a big place to play, pay a kind of, uh, his father died of cancer. There's, it's a horror uh, whenever that word is used, and, and there are cr- forms of creative cancer and forms of uh, other forms of cancer which look like they, they can be very powerful and positive, but in fact always turn out to be terrible. He's got garden gloves on while he's pecking at the keyboard here. This, these, vi- these vi- visuals here are very fanciful, you know? The animation really is not that high quality, but the idea is that you're getting closer and closer in, and what you see when you get closer and closer in is a fly. This is absolutely <laughs> implausible from every standpoint, but it's important thematically because Brundle begins to have the sense that he is truly... On the inside, he's a fly, and moreover, he always has been a fly. We see this uh, coming forward later on. He has a very powerful line later, I'm a fly who dreamed he was a man. So that lack of self-confidence that was evident in uh, his recessive, uh, internalized early state, uh, and which was, which he was liberated from by this sexual education, he now has is goes back into a state of internal internalness of inner uh, lack of connection with the outside world in and in a kind of pathetic aloneness, a pathetic separation from the world as he is going further and further down the road to to, to death, as it turns out. Cronenberg, as I said, uh, discouraged the idea that Seth's disease was was related to AIDS. And he himself, Cronenberg says, no, what it's about is mortality. It's about the fact that we all decay and die. Our bodies get old. Uh, our, our, our powers leave us, and then we die. Seth, I've been trying to reach you. Where are you? For the last four weeks. So just to repeat, Seth has gone back into being a He's moved from being a somewhat melancholy figure at the beginning because of his isolation and his his kind of uh, uh, repression uh, into being something that's well beyond melancholy. It is, uh, first of all, pathetic and then um, tragic uh, to see this kind of sense in which he himself is now disgusted with himself. He himself is now disgusted with all of the... Um, bodily appetites, the indulgences that he has uh, has been uh, carrying on with. And we see here now, look at the state of this place. There's junk everywhere. And this, this state of dereliction is something I want to come back to. It's another symptom of letting go. Your environment turns into, you know, old donut boxes and stuff. So here he is now with these these canes, which makes him into like a multi-legged uh, personage in the way that he's going to be, you know, in the way that a fly is. Someone different, someone hideous, repulsive. What happened? 
he's wearing, I've become somewhat different, somewhat repulsive, and we look at him and he is really, really transformed. Again, the point I want to make is that it's not simply horrifying that he has been transformed in this way. I was not pure, he says. So this idea that he himself is somehow responsible for this state, that he himself, there was always something dormant in his his personality and his in his psychology, always something dormant that manifested itself finally in this disgusting transformation uh, in, uh, in an exterior way. So, you know, he's, he's at the bottom of that arc, which started out, again, with him being, um, you know, uh, inhibited and so on, and then becoming a tremendously uh, uninhibited. And now here he is at, at a lower point than he's ever been before when he is back into a, a kind of... Well, his state is a is is a, a state of self self disgust, self pity. Now here he is in his red shirt again, but it's now leaking all these disgusting bodily functions. He says, "Oh no, you're so you're so pretty. I can't. I'm too disgusting for you." And again, this is a a, a, a paraphrase of kind of, of of sexual lack of confidence, of sexual shyness. You know, I'm just an ugly kid. Uh, you, what do you want to, to do with me? I'm a disgusting person, uh, and it's a a replay, so to speak, of a certain kind of uh, adolescent uh, condition. I won't be just another tumorous bore. Tumorous bore. That's uh, refers to uh, cancer as a disease. Uh, the tragic nature of this love situation is now becoming ev- evident, above all in Ronnie's performance. So here he is, he's, uh, he has his first moment of fly-eating, uh, of regurgitating all of this white fluid, acidic fluid, onto, and it's like the worst, absolutely worst possible gaffe in table manners that you could ever make. Okay, now his ear comes off. So we're seeing this ear. No. spectacular uh, descent, spectacular descent. And she hugs him. And in screenings of this film, uh, I myself and uh, others have reported uh, that people gag at the idea that Ronnie would actually uh, hug this guy. It's a strong indication of how, how what, a, what a deep romantic attachment she has uh, to Seth that he... Uh, that she is willing to go so close to embrace this monstrous, uh, disgusting figure. And now you have Ronnie expounding her emotional state, expounding the fact that as Seth has been transformed in this way, she does not feel simply disgust and fear, but, but pity and love. Still, and she's ahead of the audience probably in this respect. But what it does emphasize that what we're what we're seeing is a process of loss of self. Finally, uh, a process of sinking so low, of of descending so far into the pit of of what unfeasibleness, uh, unworkableness psychologically and and personally. He's he's. He's he's descended so far again that he can't w- make his way back up. The 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 the, uh, the personality is broken so badly that it is he, he doesn't really have any hope of recovery. 
Uh, so here we have Ronnie arriving again in her beat-up Saab, rusting Saab, even even in its, uh, you know, old and beat-up condition. It's still, you know, like a European car with some uh, some cachet. She looks here up here at this brick, this blank brick, dirty brick building, and now she comes in and it's not cleaner on the inside at all. Instead, it is this, you know, massive collection of junk everywhere. Again, another uh, manifestation of of Cronenberg's fear, it seems, or the the fear of the you know maker of these movies, that uh, if you let go, a, a symptom is you can't control the amount of mess that results, the amount of disorder that that uh, exists, the amount of chaos. Therefore, so all the chaos in the in the flat here in the in the apartment is. A representation of the amount of chaos in Seth himself. Now he's walking on the ceiling and he's walking on the walls and we had, uh, as Cronenberg explains in his own commentary, a revolving set uh, just like the one in uh, Easter Wedding that had uh, Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling in the walls. It's a disease with a purpose. It's a way of uh, Again, trying to relate the physical transformation that's going on, the physical de- degradation that he's experiencing, to some kind of uh, psychological condition. Uh, the disease, like the computer, has its own ideas, has its own uh, interpretive uh, qualities. And he's now reached that stage of corrosive, sarcastic humor with respect to his uh, more and more uh, horrifying situation. So now he's going to make a children's program. You seem tired. You got me there? So instead of filming his his, uh, project of going through uh, as she was, uh, as she was reporting, you know, to, to figure out that she was going to do as her project with Seth. Now she is documenting instead this. Although he can chew up solid food, he can't digest it. Solid food hurts. So, like a fly, Brundlefly breaks down solids with a corrosive enzyme. So he's uh, here. He is children's presenter, scientific show, and this disgusting <laughs> everything that is. Ready for demonstration, kids? All we need is sound effects there. We've uh, already seen it. So, even though he is turning into a monster, he's, we see his process of trying to come to terms with that. Trying to, I mean, I'm being turned into something else. Uh, I, I, I'm becoming, wouldn't, I'm becoming something new. I mean, how many people would not want to become something new? And this notion of, of um, well, maybe this transformation isn't so terrible. Maybe this transformation uh, could, be, could be a good thing. We never know where we're going to end up. We in the audience see this as a delusion. But, you know, if you look at the um, outtakes that are present also uh, on this disc. You see a couple of scenes in which Cronenberg has tried to uh, create some optimism about 
the way that things have have ended. Um, uh, and I just get down on my knees and thank God that they were cut out of the film because they were they would destroy they would have destroyed the film. So he made absolutely the right choice. Now she's pregnant. A horrible thing. Is she pregnant with a fly creature? Look at the look at how this shot starts. This is just an ordinary daytime uh, recording scene. She pulls up in front of the hospital. There's doctors in their white coats going by. Um, here she is in, in her wheelchair. She's being wheeled into uh, the operating room. And once more, Stathis is in gray and a maroon tie, these much more controlled types of um, clothing. He's in control here. Okay, here's the operating scene. There is lots and lots of medical horror in Cronenberg, and one thinks especially of uh, Rabbit and, and the Brood. Uh, sorry, Rabbit and, and Shivers. Uh, the doctor, the, the gynecologist, the obstetrician here, is David Cronenberg, okay? So we have Cronenberg parked between the legs of, you know, his star, so to speak, and he is giving, he is going to oversee the birth of this child, of this, and look at the spattered blood everywhere. This is a Cronenberg, truly Cronenberg horror film. Blood. Now, the thing that comes out is so horrible that even Cronenberg himself is disgusted by it. It's just he turns his head, he turns his head away, and here we have this absolutely awful thing, which incidentally is very, very similar to the the uh, visceral parasites that you see in in shivers. So that it's as though, except it's much larger. So this is as though the visceral parasites that Cronenberg implanted in people, so to speak, in shivers, and which he did so with a degree of, of you know, like frat boy humor almost, has now been re-delivered into his own hands, and he's just appalled and disgusted by what he sees. I don't think that's a, a, a misreading. I don't think that's a stretch at all uh, to talk about, about this. Of course, the whole thing was a dream, and a nightmare. And it's masterfully used because it's so completely disguised until the end. Here now we have again a further decayed, a further advanced, uh, transformed uh, Brundle fly as we now begin to talk about him. I want a disc. Give me preliminary integration. Communicating with his computer and he can't press the He's, you can't, his, his voice is not recognized by the computer, and it's quite uh, insistent on this. And now his teeth start to fall out in addition. In a second. There they are, falling on the keyboard. And again, Cronenberg is completely... Uh, uninhibited himself in the, uh, the very straight uh, depiction of bodily horrors that are happening. Look at the state of that bathroom now also. He is still trying to maintain a degree of detachment from what's happening. He's, he's a, still a scientific observer of the horrible things that are happening to him. Uh, he, he, uh, he's got a... a uh, 
uh, a closet full of medicine cabinet full of organs that have fallen off. And if you, you know, you want to uh, pause the disc and see if you can identify them other than the ear, uh, good luck. Ronnie comes in and the lighting has changed in this place. And the, again, the state of chaos is just getting more and more, more and more equivalent to the state of chaos in Brendel's uh, transformation. Is that why you're here to catch up? So he's, again, still trying to maintain a degree of ironic detachment from what's happening. He, it's a hard thing to maintain, as we can tell. The teeth have begun to fall out. The medicine cabinets, now the Brundle Museum of Natural History. You want to see what else is in it? The Brundle Museum of Natural History. A joke. Then... Ronnie is unable to take up this position of detach, ironic detachment. And in fact, Seth really isn't either. I came to tell you. Um, <laughs> she wants to tell him she's pregnant, but she can't. And once more, the pathos of this film and the pathos of this whole latter part of the film uh, as he's be more and more clearly turned into a monstrosity the pathos of it is is invested in Ronnie, who is still somehow attached to the Seth that was there and the Seth that is still has... Have you ever heard of... You know, part of himself is still in Brundlefly. And now we get this speech about insect politics. Have you ever heard of insect politics? Insects have, have no politics. They're... There, there's nothing to negotiate. There's, they're all, they're nothing but predatory. They're nothing but they have no uh, a mental aspect, no compassion, uh, and they are, um, they, they have, in other words, they are inhuman in all of these respects. I'd like to become the first insect politician, which again is is a somebody who's an insect with all those inhuman qualities and also somebody who's capable of politics, of negotiation, of, of you know, f- f- uh, mental formation of what's going on. I'm saying I'm an insect. I'm saying I'm an insect. Who dreamt he was a man. Who dreamt he was a man and loved it. So the real Seth Brundle is an insect. The insect is awake. The insect was always there and is awake. This interpretation, you know, you can't take it literally, but metaphorically speaking, the idea that somehow Seth always knew that he was like a catastrophic failure in some way, a catastrophic, unworkable, unfeasible uh, creature, a, a, you know, a human subject who who was radically and uh, fatally damaged, uh, in, you know, infected in some way. Out into the hallway here. Let's go. Let's do it now. Now, wait. Wait a minute. What did he say? I couldn't tell. Let's go, Dad. No. She's she's great here. I don't think you're in the right state of mind. No, no. 
I want it out of my body now. I want it out of my body now. And, uh, yeah, uh, who wouldn't? I want it out of my body. This idea that what that what that this body, this bad body, this uh, monstrous body, this this uh, dangerous body has invaded her own body. This monstrous body is now perhaps turning her partly into a monster. Is a very again. Seth is always unbalanced. Ronnie is always sane. That's a, one way of looking at this. Looking down from the rooftop, like this is a very gothic, you know, Frankenstein uh, type of, of thing where, you know, uh, well, okay. Hunchback so of Notre Dame looking down uh, from the battlements into uh, the streets. To have an abortion. In the middle of the night? This is a very uncomfortable scene. Reason to think that Anybody getting getting an abortion, you know, bringing themselves into a doctor's office to get an abortion, never mind in the middle of the night, it's, there's always a degree of discomfort. Is it your child? No. The way that the doctor keeps sort of testing this to find out if it, if it belongs in any kind of template of people looking for abortions, what their reasons for doing this might be. And all of this in the middle of the night, it's very, very uncomfortable. And so he's talking about tests and he's talking about, uh, you know, well, or do you feel you're in the right emotional state to, uh, to be wanting an abortion? This is an, uh, a step that can't be uh, revoked uh, and so on. And, and then we get these explanations from... From, I'll do it myself, um, she says. And we have Stathis talking about how it's the, well, it, we have, we're afraid that the, that the baby might be deformed. That's a, a, a accurate and yet inadequate uh, description of um, what they're really afraid of. And then why is that? Because the father uh, is deformed. And these are, these words are, I don't know. I just find that very, very hard to, very hard to sit through. Now here he is, and again we're into this Frankenstein uh, motor or, or you know, uh, gothic mode. You could talk about a gothic mode of horror here, where he crashes through the glass and carries her off uh, in his arms, which itself has a kind of overtone of romance, of of gothic romance. But we're aware of how far we are from any kind of true Beauty and the Beast moment here. It is, it has been Beauty and the Beast uh, for a little while now, but there's no way that this relationship can be uh, re-integrated. And now he's started to go nuts. Uh, He he wants to to melt melt himself with, with Ronnie and with the fetus, and will be they'll be the they'll be a true nuclear family, all in all three mother, father, and baby in in one being. What there's there's this kind of um, shadows ghost of a an idealistic uh, interpretation of what's going on, which of course is completely nuts. And Ronnie's fear of going through por- teleportation, which she's had ever since the stuff started, uh, is now at a, at a point where it is a life and death matter 
uh, without any ambiguity to it. It's, it's destruction. It's a form of, uh, of monstrosity that is going to be visited on Ronnie as well. So now we have to get, at this point in the movie, we have to get from this state of affairs where a mad, truly mad scientist is wanting to genetically meld himself uh, in, a, in his fly-like form uh, with this, you know, beautiful woman, this pretty woman, this any other person. It doesn't matter whether they're, you know, pretty or, or ugly or whatever. So now we have Stathis unpacking his, his shotgun. It's a, maybe a, a moment for gun lovers here, uh, assembling uh, the tool of destruction and, you know, fitting the stock, inserting the shells. This is the tool that is going to save us here. And again, see how meticulously, how uh, strongly the mess of this place is emphasized in the visuals. So somehow um, Stathis knows which button to push on the com on the keyboard to get all this information. The music is beautiful here. I haven't mentioned the music at all. It's Howard Shore, the composer, Howard Shore, who is amongst the most famous and most in-demand uh, movie music uh, composers, uh, really, at this point, and has been for, for a long time. But he, he is, his scores for Cronenberg uh, are remarkable without exception. So the fact that this music is, sad at that point and now becomes more dramatic this is pretty awful so this is what you do to your sexual rival there's a there's a, a little overtone of that I don't like you stop this me I can't even want Maybe remember why I don't like you, but I'm sure is God going to punish you in some horrible way. Okay, one limb was not enough, so we have to have another limb and uh, another special effect of uh, decay. And the film at this point has gone over completely into horror movie territory, where psychology really doesn't exist anymore, where we're just having a spectacle of horrific events displayed in the most literal way, in the most no, explicit way don't, possible. Please. This, I would say, is the most explicitly horrific uh, of all of Cronenberg's films, the most, uh, the one with the most fl flesh and blood and guts and, and uh, sort of physical violence. Now she's the one who's looking in through the uh, skylight and or from the, uh, the higher floor and he's walking on the ceiling again. Help me to be human. Help me to be human. Well, she's still talking to him. I go there. And, uh, 
You go there. Talking without your teeth is perhaps a little bit difficult. We come apart. And he's about to lose language here as we can see his head is twitching back and forth. His his verbal delivery is more broken up. You, me, and the baby. Together. Okay, sequence activated, and now we have a countdown. This familiar uh, plot device of so many movies in which the clock is counting down to some terrible event, uh, and you just have to wait in suspense while uh, it advances and advances and, and until finally there is some kind of rescue that takes place, and that's exactly what happens in this scene. The film, we have to remember that the film was a commercial success, right? A commercial success. And now, he, this is, you know, the last. Oh, look, it's still alive. And she's just going nuts. It's like a worse than Texas Chainsaw a massacre scene. Nice. This is the insect within, right? Stathis is going to be resurrected from ooh, death to interfere with this process. And this purifying light now has just become scary. Gotta remember that everything, all the special effects here, this is talked about by Cronenberg in the, uh, in the other uh, commentary track. All the special effects here are without CGI. Everything is with, with models. No, sorry, everything is with, with uh, sort of rubber suits and appendages. There's no uh, computerization of stuff that's happening. So a fusion takes place here now. Red alert, red alert. He breaks out just as the sequence is com completed. Stathis is down for the count. The last special effect results in the fusion of Brundlefly with the telepod. So it becomes the, the ultimate meeting point, so to speak, of science and the body. And the ultimate meeting point of science and the body, a project which started out to try and benefit people, to try to be an, an improvement in life, instead has become absolutely, absolutely the opposite of that. Turned into something not just disastrous, catastrophic, but something indescribably monstrous. So now this being who emerges from this, pro this transformation process, fusion process, 
is half Brundlefly, half machine. Metallic parts, cables trailing. And this, again, all of this dry ice that's all over the place. And, and now, in this final transformation, the face of this monster fly has become actually pathetic again, has become pitiable rather than uh, frightening or disgusting. Of course, it's disgusting too, but the battle is, is won now. Cables. And this being wants nothing more than to be put out of its misery. It asks to be shot by Ronnie. It more or less insists on being shot by Ronnie. And so the film has an ending which is consistent with other Cronenberg horror films, namely a suicidal ending. You look at, at uh, Rabid, you look at uh, Videodrome, and then you also look at The Dead Zone, the film before this, and uh, the uh, Dead Ringers, uh, the film that followed it, and they're all suicidal films. They're not just unhappy endings. This human mask is male subject that's been re uh, produced at, at the end of this process is so impossible that suicide is the best option. Oh, certainly the best option for this, this ruined male. I should just maybe re remark that it's very brave to finish the film in this way to just have a fade to black here instead of, you know, something more decorated. Um, again, the extras show alternate, an alternate ending, which is, you know, good riddance, uh, I think. But it is interesting to look at this and to see the process whereby Cronenberg is trying to redeem all the horror, all the, all the defeat, uh, all the loss that has taken place in this film.